This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, we talk with Neil Gaiman, executive producer of Good Omens. The Amazon miniseries is adapted from the fantasy novel of the same name, which Gaiman and the late Terry Pratchett wrote three decades ago. Later, Senior Awards Editor Michael Schneider will discuss how the Emmy race is impacting this year's TV schedule. Stay tuned. Neil Gaiman, thank you for doing this. You're so welcome. So, with Good Omens coming on Amazon, you've talked about this a bit, but uh, you did the novel many years ago with Terry Pratchett, and you said that... um, You've said that continuing that story was something that you and Terry had talked about a lot. Could you just kind of describe, you know, what your conversations with him about it, him about it were, and how that led to this show? Sure. Um, I mean, Good Omens was the thing that you always have to understand about Good Omens is we were doing it for fun. Um, Neither of us was famous neither of us was rich we didn't know I'd written the beginning of a novel never written a novel before sent it to a few friends then life got in the way and I was suddenly writing Sandman and I'm up to about Sandman 6 or 7 and I get a phone call from Terry saying yeah that thing you sent me are you doing anything with it because you know I, I know how it goes um Let's. You can either sell me the idea and what you've written so far, or let's write it together. And I'm like, let's write it together, because I knew how good Terry was, and I knew that I was a baby, and I was like, absolutely, this is like being apprenticed to a master craftsman. And we wrote the novel. We did a giant second draft on the novel. We wrote it together. Some bits were written by Terry, some bits were written by me, some bits are me rewritten by Terry, some bits are Terry rewritten by me, some bits are Terry footnoted by me, uh, some bits are me footnoted by Terry, some bits of additional footnotes are by the other one. You know, any possible way we could write it, we did, including right at the end, just sitting in the same room, looking over each other's shoulder and filling in bits and typing. Um, we sold the novel. We sold the novel for more money than Terry had ever got um, for about, um, let's see, do some quick long division in my head, um, for about eight times as much as Terry had ever gotten for a novel before. Uh, We sold the book in the UK and then sold it for a relatively princely sum in America too. And suddenly it was going to be coming out. And that was, we sold it in the summer of, uh, it was 1989, I believe. We'd finished the novel. um, And uh, we were at the World Fantasy Convention in Seattle. And back then, we were sharing a room to save money, <laughs> which tells you a lot. You know, by, by the time I, you know, Terry finished, he was buying hotels before he got there and having them you know, cleaned and, and stuff and then selling them on leaving. But back then, we were sharing a room to save money, and I had been up at the bar drinking and talking, and Terry had gone off to bed. And I did that thing where you creep into the room really, really quietly because there's another bed in the corner, and you go over to your own bed and... Just 
tiptoeing over, and at that point, a voice came out of the darkness saying, so what time of the night do you call this thing? Your mother and I have been worried sick about you. <laughs> and uh, Terry was awake, and I was awake. We got into our respective beds. He was already in his. I got into mine. And we lay there in the dark, talking about what we would do to Good Omens if we did another book. And basically, we just lay there plotting book two. Now, the actual giant mega plot of book two, which at the time we called 668, The Neighbor of the Beast, um, we never actually isn't used in, in Good Omens. But a lot of the trappings and the idea of what propelled book two into existence um, wound up integral to what I did in Good Omens, the TV series. Because I had um, angels and I had heaven. And Terry and I started talking a lot about what we never see hell, we never see heaven. Um, and we never also get to see the people behind the scenes who were all very, very keen on Armageddon. And they're, very, they, they're all working very hard to make sure that the world ends like it's meant to do. And as far as they're concerned, this is what everybody's heading for. So when I, I wrote Good Omens, the TV series... All of that stuff was there waiting for me. We'd thought about it for 30 years. We'd talked about it. Terry and I had even at one point done a film script very, very early on. Um, we were staying right here in the Chateau Marmont Hotel uh, when the rooms did not look like these. These rooms that we're in right now are very nice, uh, but we're talking February 1991 and... Everything in this whole place was very, very sad. <laughs> and it was raining and unpleasant and awful. And um, Terry and I were working on writing an outline for Good Omens that the studio would sign off on. And I remember even in that one, we, we brought the angels in. Um, for reasons that I forget, other than... I do remember that the studio was not comfortable with Aziraphale owning a bookshop, so we'd negotiated him to being working in the British Museum. Uh, <laughs> so he worked in the British Museum, and at one point um, you had a sequence where angels have turned up in the British Museum and are pursuing Crowley and Aziraphale through the British Museum using halos uh, as killer frisbees. And... Uh, Anyway, that, that was a, a script that was rejected with bafflement by the studio, and I'm not really sure that I blame them. But we were very much, this was very much part of what we wanted to do that the idea that, of Crowley and Aziraphale as, uh, you know, they're, they're basically, it's every Cold War novel in which you have two operatives from two different sides and they have more in common with each other than they have with back home. And that was always how we thought about it. So I just got to basically use that trope and you get to see a lot more of back home. And I got the lovely, wonderful John Hamm 
in to play the angel Gabriel and sell you on the whole thing. Because I, I don't know if it would have been as easy without John. There is something effortless about the idea of... When I, when I came up with the idea of our Gabriel for this, I thought, well, he just has to be the best-looking, best-dressed, convinced of his own rightness boss you have ever had. And he it doesn't even occur to him in any universe that he could be wrong about anything. And who do I know who could actually play that and pull it off? And so I sent an email saying, Dear John Hamm, uh, some years ago you told me that Good Omens was your favorite book when you were in college and that it was unfilmable. And I have made the mistake of turning it into television. And would you mind playing Gabriel? He isn't in the book. Um, <laughs> and I just got back an email back from him. And it just said, yes. And then it was signed Ham in capital letters, which is how John Ham signs everything. <laughs> it just comes back Ham. Uh, and it was, he was just, uh, you know, an absolute delight. And watching him and Michael Sheen act, is almost as much fun as watching Michael Sheen and David Tennant act. But nothing is as much fun as watching Michael and David on screen together. It's, it's quite fun to watch the two of them together. Um, at what point did this thing that you, um, or that John, I guess, described as unfilmable, at what point did you realize that maybe culturally and in the entertainment business, things had shifted to the point that not only was this thing filmable, but this was like... Uh, a big TV series it was pointed out to me by Terry Gilliam and Terry Gilliam had been trying to make it into a movie really from you know he'd wanted to do it initially in 1990 Um, he got the rights from us in the late 90s and uh, had a fantastic script went out to sell it, and it was February 2002. Everybody was still reeling from 9-11. Nobody was interested in a really good comedy about the end of the world. And um, and they also, you know, he had Johnny Depp lined up at that point for Crowley, and they were like, he's an art house actor, and Robin Williams was going to play um, Aziraphale and Madame Tracy and I think one of the demons... And they were like, you know, Robin Williams is shtick. Nobody's interested in that stuff. Ah, I think I had Kirsten Dunst as anathema. And they it just, nobody would do it. So a few years ago, maybe 2012, um, I was screening Caroline at the Egyptian Theatre here. And in the afternoon. And in the morning, Terry Gilliam was screening... Um, 12 Monkeys and so we met for lunch in the middle and peculiarly or not Michael Sheen was with us so the three of us had lunch and uh, Terry said you know we're in this world there's this thing called Game of Thrones it's just beginning to happen and there's the way people are making television we could do Good Omens now as television and I'm like great what a fantastic idea and then Terry sort of having set this in motion kind of backed out 
I think probably at the point where he realized that to make television, you're shooting six pages a day. And he didn't want to do that. So he was, uh, he backed out. Um, although sometime later when I emailed him and said, can I steal this casting joke that you were going to do in your script? He said, yes, but it's the only thing in my script you can use. And then I tried to use the casting joke. I'm not going to say what it was, because it was a particular piece of casting. And we just couldn't get it to work, which really made me sad that the, the person wanted to do it, and we wanted them to do it, and they were we were always in the wrong continents, and I couldn't persuade the BBC that this was the one thing that was actually worth sending a crew to Los Angeles for and making happen and so we never did it but uh, it, was a, it was a goofy piece of stunt casting that was Terry's idea um, Terry Pratchett and I then sort of once this it was like a, a stone rolling down a hill once the idea of it as television started rolling down the hill then we pursued it a little bit uh, Terry Jones did a treatment for how he would do it as a television series, um, which neither Terry Pratchett nor I liked. I mean, we loved Terry Jones's work. I've known Terry, I admire Terry, and we thought he was going to be great, and it just wasn't quite it. But it also, it wasn't quite it in ways that... It's that thing of you know it when you see it, and I knew that actually, okay, well, that's you don't do that then, and you don't do that, because that, you know, Terry Jones's was very much about trying to fool the audience into thinking that war the boy Warlock was actually the Antichrist and then doing a big reveal on them and it's actually Adam and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, no, that's, that's not it. The joy of this has to be, um, you know, you follow the baby swap. You, we enjoy this. It, it, um... And then we kept looking for writers and we spoke to not a lot of writers but the guys we spoke to were at the top of their profession. You know, they're, they're people I respect, people I think are brilliant. Um, and they all said no. Um, they said it was too complicated, too tangled, too many expectations, unfilmable. I, they were very nice about it. Um, but, and they were fa tended to be fans, but they also didn't want to do it. And then, meanwhile, Terry Pratchett had Alzheimer's. Uh, it was getting worse. And finally, in the summer of 2014, he wrote to me and he said, you have to do this. You have, I know how busy you are. And also, Terry and I had a deal that we didn't do anything individually on Good Omens. We would only do things together. Um, and he said, I know how busy you are, but you're the only person with the same love and understanding and passion for the old girl that I have. You have to do this, because I want to watch it. And I said, okay, I will, I will make this for you so that you can see it. And then he died, which came as rather a surprise to us. We figured we had, you know, five or six years of slow decline ahead, and then suddenly he was gone. Um, which meant that it had now become a last request. It had now become this sort of sacred task. I had to do it. And I flew back 
from Terry's funeral, had a little cry, and started writing the first script. And all I remember about writing it is that nothing seemed very funny. Um, and it took me about 18 months, or a bit less. I finished in July, and that would have been April. So I'd say 14 months to write all six scripts. Um, and I missed Terry a lot when I was writing it. When I would get stuck, because whenever I get stuck, it was like, well, when I get stuck on Good Omens, what I do is call Terry. And now he's not there. And especially, there was, there's clever things that I do in, I think they're clever, um, in the last episode, where I realized I did not have enough plot to get me to the end of, I, the novel does not have enough plot to get you to the end of episode six. Plot stops halfway through. And then it's just people standing around having cigarettes and saying goodbye to each other. And I went, this could be the dullest piece of television since, you know, the end of Return of the King. If I don't do something, so I need a new plot. And I came up with a whole new plot that now bolts on and bolts in and is an integral part of it and makes absolute sense and literally keeps you going until the final seconds. And that, um, I, I remember, you know, the, really wanting to talk to him and then coming up with the idea and then really, really wanting to talk to him to go, look, I did something clever. Look, Terry, I figured it out. And he wasn't there. Um, but it also gave me a kind of a... I am... Meek is not the right word, because I'm definitely not meek, but I'm agreeable. I will try and work. I will try and find agreeable compromises. I'm not going to put up huge fights about things. I would much rather just sort of, you know, be like water and go down, find my level, but just... Um, but I found with with good omens, I bent a lot less to the winds because I was making this for Terry. So I would have, you know, producers coming up and saying, well, you have to do this. And I'd be like, yeah, no. And I'm like, but we need to, you know, you can't do this. And I'm like, I will, okay, I understand that you have once again lost control of the budget and you need me to go and sort this out for you and your solution to that is cutting scenes that are important and make sense. And it's not going to happen because I'm the showrunner. So I am now going to go off and figure out how we solve this. And I will save the money somewhere else, but I can tell you that scene that you want to cut is not going to go. Um, and a lot of the time I would solve budget issues also by just drilling down into them. Because um, a lot of the time, you know, there was one scene that our producers were dead set on getting rid of. Um, at one point, they even... These were some early producers who weren't with us for very long, but at one point, they, they moved it to a place on the schedule which would have made it unfilmable. Um, it was a scene in the Globe Theatre, and they'd moved it to December the 21st, which was the last day of our shooting schedule in England. So even if it didn't just fall off the schedule, there wouldn't have been enough daylight because the sun wouldn't be up in time to shoot it in the morning because we had to be out of the globe by 12. So it was sort of like, well, that's not going to happen. We're not losing that. But I drilled down into why 
it was considered too expensive and realized that, ah, it's because I've set it on one of the first nights of Hamlet and we're going to need three or four hundred people as extras in order to make this work, clothed as Elizabethans. We only have the place from like seven, eight in the morning when there's light until midday anyway. Um, and, you know, just the the sorting out 300, 400 extras would have killed us. But that was the kind of thing where when I realized that was the problem, it wasn't just rent, it wasn't renting the globe, it was just the number of extras and the time we had. I was able to turn to the director, Douglas, who was always fantastic, and just said to him, Douglas, would you like a rehearsal or a flop? And he said, oh, a flop sounds much better now. And I said, great, we can afford Shakespeare, can't we? And he said, yes, we can afford Shakespeare. So I got to write my, my series, sequence in the Globe, which I actually think is better than the one that I'd originally written because I now have Shakespeare in it and you have about maybe half a dozen um, actors wandering around, uh, obviously an, an enormously empty Globe, and it's wonderful. Those types of problems, as you said, you're the showrunner on this, and most showrunners do not take the path that you have taken to running the television show, becoming as successful as you have become in multiple other mediums of writing, um, and then running a show. Has it... Are there... Do you think that you would be spending as much time and energy on that exercise or that type of work at this point in your career. I realize you've been very heavily involved in American Gods as well on stars. Um, but if not for good omens forcing you to be, so no, ab- absolutely not. I had no desire at all to ever be a showrunner. I was not put on this earth to have budget arguments with people. Um, the, you know, I'm, I'm a novelist who two years ago put my novel into a bag and said, I will be back, wait for me. And I can't wait to get back, you know, after May the 31st when it drops, I'm planning on becoming a novelist again. I'm really looking forward to it. And a retired showrunner, um, which I'm also looking forward to, who writes, I think, a little in his retirement. Um, But... uh, I absolutely, I'm, you know, I would have done the American Gods thing because they're other people are showrunners. I'm the advisor. Um, my advice is listened to or not listened to, taken or not taken. I give notes, and they are acted upon or not acted upon, and that's all fine. It's it's it is their show. It is not my show. Um, you know, I'm always baffled and amused when people come up to me and they say, "How could you have allowed this thing to have happened?" And it's like, yeah. Didn't write the episode, didn't direct it, not the showrunner, wasn't there, was in England making a different show. Sorry you didn't like that thing. Um, But with Good Omens, I I told Terry that I would make him a show, and I told him I would make him a show that he would like. And that, for me, was the key. The idea that this would be that show. And that meant that if I was going to have budget fights, I would have budget fights. If I was going to come up with creative and brilliant solutions 
to budget issues, I was going to come up with creative and brilliant solutions. If I was going to work seven-day weeks and 15-hour days and sit there with, um, you know, it was not uncommon, especially in the last three months, for Douglas McKinnon and I um, to essentially, you'd come in, you'd put in an eight-hour workday, and then you'd put in an eight-hour workday because you needed to be in at eight in order to screen something, and you needed to be there at midnight when the person at uh, in L.A. who needed to do the ADR was available, and you just did it, and you just kept going. And it, it was a thing that both, you know, neither Douglas or I, and he, you know, directed Emmy Award-winning things but neither of us had done 11 months of post-production um, it was huge and seemed interminable and every time you'd, you'd keep kidding yourself that the next bit once we got over whatever hurdle it was the next bits would all be easy and then the next bit was just as hard as the last bit um, but it also meant that because you know, for for various complicated and bizarre reasons that I'm not going to go into here, we really didn't have producers. Um, they'd all sort of, you know, our exec producer had gone six weeks before shooting um, under a cloud. Some other producers went very soon after and we then would sort of hire producers to get us to a point. But really it was just me and Douglas um, which meant that it wound up considering it has a frankly enormous budget and was, you know, may well have been the biggest thing that the BBC had been involved in making and up to that point was probably the biggest thing that Amazon has made. Um, it's very personal and small and handmade and we, you know, it, it's it doesn't tack to the wind. It's the thing that Douglas and I wanted to make. We are very happy for it to be a little bit lumpy and a little bit weird and very much like not like anything else. And I can imagine if that we'd had a you know a powerful producer involved as well, it might well have there might have been arguments that we lost. There might have been places that it went off and became more sensibly commercial and some of the weird, knobbly, sharp bits would have been cut off. Um, and instead, it's it's our show. Aside from being able to fulfill that promise to Terry, was it a... Doing that for the first time, and it sounds like the last time, was it an experience that you enjoyed? I enjoyed a lot of it. Um, and I'm really glad I did it. You know, much in the way um, that one could talk about, you know, going to boot camp or whatever. You're really glad you did it. The thing that I'm most glad about, honestly, is I don't think a showrunner can ever bullshit me again. Um, you know, in the past, I was easily bullshitted <laughs> by showrunners and producers because they said things and they sounded convincing. Um but by by the end of things, I remember having a conversation with somebody on American Gods 
right at the very end when we were talking about something they were going to do on the last episode. And I was like, well, why don't you just do X? And they were like, well, we cannot do X. X would cost us $600,000 to do. And I'm like, well, yeah, you could do X for 600000 or you could do X for 300000 or you can do X up against a wall from a different angle for 150000 or you can do X for 75000 which is what it costs you to turn on the lights in the morning. So you're going to have to do something there, so why not do it? And why not work out how to do it rather than go, ah, this is much too expensive and you cannot do it? Which is not the answer that I would have given um, had somebody said, it'll co- we cannot do it, it will cost $600,000 to do, um, you know, a year earlier. I would have gone, oh, oh, you're quite right then. And as it was, I had learned all about solutions and problems and and how you shoot things. And, you know, the the amazing thing about Good Omens is while we have a budget, we also have a show that looks like it was made for probably four or five times our budget um, because we deployed our money very, very carefully. And there are so many places where we did fancy things that you can't see. And there are so many places where we did things that look fancy. And actually, they make it look enormously fancier. You know, I love the fact that our, our VFX... Um, the stuff that people may be impressed by will be, you know, the burning M25, driving a burning car around, um, you know, heaven, all of the appearance of, of Benedict Cumberbatch's Satan, all of that kind of stuff. That's big and fancy. For me, or even the Garden of Eden stuff, which is amazing. But for me, the VFX is the place where it really earns its keep is as far as anybody watching that show is concerned, we must have shut down London Soho for 10 days in order to shoot there because we are very obviously in Soho and, you know, given the number of people there and what's going on, we would have had to be a major Hollywood movie. And actually, we built you know, a quarter of a block and a little street and some stuff and everything beyond that is digital and it works and it is utterly convincing to the eye and the mind and it gives you an effect that we should not be able to get on our budget and we have. Neil, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Dan. That was really fun. As Emmy campaigns have become more competitive, they've also begun to more heavily affect more aspects of the TV business. Michael Schneider wrote in this week's Variety about the link between Emmy strategy and scheduling. Mike, how is the Emmy race affecting scheduling strategy this season? Well, uh, Dan, remember the days when we came back from Memorial Day and there was no programming yeah. left? Like, we could actually go home at a decent time <laughs> and not have to worry about binging some last-minute show. Well, of course, that's all changed now, right? Uh, so... At the end of May, we saw all sorts of premieres, including the Deadwood movie on HBO, uh, when we see when they see us, the new Ava DuVernay uh, miniseries on Netflix, a uh, bunch more as well, kind of easing the, that last minute eligibility in before May 31st, which is the cutoff 
for for Emmy eligibility uh, traditional season wise. So so yeah, we're seeing a lot of folks trying to slightly game the season by uh, putting together these real last minute launches. And what's the what's the thinking behind giving a show a la- a launch right at the last possible minute? Well, so when you promote these shows, you kind of get uh, you know a two for the price of one. So you're promoting tune-in, you're promoting the actual launch of these shows. But as a result, it's also helping with awareness when it comes to the Emmy competition. Hopefully, it's top of mind when Emmy voters start to you know sit down with their ballots. Uh, hopefully, they're paying attention to what you're doing. Uh, but on the flip side, you could argue that Emmy voters are already inundated with so much that you, you're kind of late to the party. Uh, you know, a good example, and sorry, I'm kind of rambling all over the place. A good example is, uh, you know, uh, live in front of a studio audience, which, as you know, I loved the Norman yeah. Lear special, uh, totally dug it. Uh, but that was real last minute. And suddenly they sprung up on us. Well, all these people are going to be uh, submitted for, for Emmys. So everyone who had been prognosticating for months uh, who the front runners are in the limited uh, series and TV movie category, suddenly they're, they're having to make way for Marissa Tomei and Woody Harrelson and all these last minute people. Uh, so... I don't know if that's going to register with everyone that, hey, these folks are eligible as well. ABC's got its work and Sony, who produced it, have have their work cut out for them now and, and trying to educate voters at the very last minute. Hey, don't forget these folks as well. Right. And and that All in the Family Jefferson special that you mentioned, I mean, that's an interesting case because it was truly an event program, right? Yeah. Um, whereas when Netflix uh, launches something – um, it's not oftentimes with the same level of noise that a big broadcast event is, right? Right, right. And so, you know, it, and, and a lot of these last minute, uh, you know, premieres are events, the Deadwood movie being another one. But, you know, when they see us, which is a really important doc, uh, it's devastating. It is a hard watch. Uh, you know, I worry that that might kind of get lost in the shuffle because there is so much noise at the end of May. And, and you know, Emmy voters at this point are, are busy actually going to events. They're not paying attention to what's, you know, plopping in their mailbox at the last minute. What's recent history tell us about how effective this strategy is? Recent history says it's not that effective, to tell you the truth. Most of those last-minute shows uh, that, that uh, for example, last year, uh, a couple of them got nominations. Nothing, though, uh, in the last few weeks of May last year actually won anything. So it is a gamble. But if your goal is more than just awards but also uh, you know, awareness and, and, and trying to get folks to you know tune into something, then – you know, maybe maybe it does work, but from a awards perspective, not really. And this is just an example, one example of the many ways in which the streaming revolution has sort of thrown the old scheduling playbook out the window, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, another thing, uh, you know, in the, the column that I wrote for Variety that we talk about is maybe it's time to reassess this whole September to May eligibility period in general for the Emmys, uh, because, you know, that calendar is still effective for the broadcast networks, although even that's changing. But for for cable, for premium, for streaming, there is no September to May. That just doesn't exist. That's not a, you know, they, they think in calendar years, they think in quarters. Uh, and increasingly, that's how viewers think of watching television as well. So there's going to come a point where we're going to have to reassess, okay, does it make sense to still have the Emmys in September? Does it make sense to do this September to May calendar when that's just not the way people watch TV anymore? Uh, that day will come. Mike, thanks very much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Tanya Siracho of Stars' Vita. 